Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome back to episode 331 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. In today's episode, we dive into the complex and controversial topic of relationships and monogamy. Are you curious about whether monogamy is a natural instinct or a cultural construct? Have you ever wondered about the impact of social media and infidelity in modern relationships? Join us as we explore the concept of micro-cheating and learn how couples can proactively address sexual temptation and establish trust and boundaries in their relationships. Today's guest is one of my dear friend, Dr. Greg Matos. We had Dr. Matos back on our show a few months ago, but since he has an organization about fierce love, I thought it would be a fantastic person to have this conversation with. Dr. Greg Matos is a board-certified couple and family psychologist who served over a decade in the U.S. Marine Corps and Navy, becoming a lieutenant commander. Greg was awarded the Bronze Star with Combat Valdor and Department of State's Award for Heroism. He's the author of Shattered Glass, The Story of a Marine Embassy Guard. After the military, Dr. Greg began specializing in system work and Gottman Method Couple Therapy. He found a charity on TikTok at Better Love Project to share science-based advice on love and life with his 40,000 audience members. You can join him for a casual chat and mindful breathing every day on TikTok. Before we go into our episode today, I have an announcement for our colleagues. So as you guys know that I have a private practice, that's most of the time I'm blessed that I, I have a long waiting list, but I collaborated with one of my colleagues. She's fantastic. Her specialty is treatments of OCD and anxiety. And we started our own group practice. And we are hiring licensed clinicians in California to join our practice. We're certainly interested in people of color, people with diverse backgrounds who are interested in working with eating disorders, OCD, and anxiety. And they like the flexibility of being part of a group practice that helps them to set their schedule, but also have this family environment. If you want to join our team, or you know someone that they're looking for part-time or full-time work, send them to our job posting. You can find it in the link below. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Greg Matos. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome my colleague, Dr. Greg Matos, to our show. Greg, welcome to our show. Oh, so glad to be back at your show, Dr. Nazanin. You have a phenomenal podcast. Always great to hear it. An amazing resource. So thanks for being having me be here again. Likewise, it's such an honor to have you on our show. And I know that you do such a meaningful work in our communities, spreading love with the nonprofit that you're having. We're definitely going to talk about it. And I know your message, your passion is spreading love. That's why I thought it would be wonderful to have you have you on our show for this conversation. For our listeners, this is a kind of extension of a conversation we had over a meal. And I, and I respect Dr. Greg a lot. And I thought it would be interesting because you have different perspective on these things. So, so we, it would be a wonderful conversation, hopefully, for you guys to be part of. Dr. Greg, I want to first of all talk about Better Love. Is that your nonprofit? A Better Love Project, yes. A Better Love Project. How did you get interested to make this your passion? I know you have such an interesting backstory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've, I've done a lot in my life so far. I was a combat Marine and a lieutenant commander in the Navy, and I've done a bunch of things. But at the end of the day, the most important thing to me and in my existence is a fierce, healthy love. And what I've come to realize, Dr. Nazanin, after doing a lot of couples therapy with a lot of couples over almost a decade, as a psychologist and a couple a family psychologist, therapy is not going to be the answer to solve the significant need 
that we have in our society to learn how to communicate more effectively and develop emotional and sexual intimacy with one another. It's just not. There's not enough of us to go around. Would you agree with me on that? (laughs) Absolutely. And I think you brought up such a great point when you were talking about not having information about like loving other people, like not having enough love around us. That's why I thought it would be a wonderful conversation to add as part of this series that we're doing on psychology of relationships. Because many people have this idea of like what love supposed to look like from fairy tales or porn. But in reality, kind of loving someone, being in a relationship requires worth. It's a a work and it's worthwhile work, but it requires work. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think from the very start, particularly men in heterosexual relationships, and I'll speak to my brothers out there who may be listening right now, we don't get a lot of practice with things like emotionally validating others, or even maybe sometimes experiencing emotional validation ourselves. So it's understandable that there's a gap, in other words, in skills, relationship skills out there. And so a Better Love Project's mission is to ensure that as many families, as many couples, as many individuals as we can reach actually have those skills to be able to make those beautiful connections and maybe redefine the way in which we understand and believe love is possible in the world today. I love that. For our listeners, that Dr. Greg wrote this wonderful Psychology Today piece on men and binding love. And many of my colleagues DM me, like like within a week, I got maybe 20 DMs about that. Like, oh, have you read this article? I kept saying that I know this psychologist and it resonated with so many people. Tell us what did you talk about in that piece? So that was a viral piece for sure. I've written a couple of other semi-viral pieces as well, all related to this idea of love, monogamy, and making things work in today's relationship landscape. The premise of that article in general is that there has been a tectonic shift in the standards and desires and needs and what women specifically are going to tolerate at this point. (laughs) About three decades, I would suggest Over the last three decades, in heterosexual relationships specifically, women have been historically asking for more emotional intimacy, more romance, more passion in their sexual existence with their partners. And there really hasn't been a significant wide-scale shift toward meeting those needs effectively. And so my article speaks to the what the outcome, one of the outcomes is that there's a lot of single, lonely men out there right now. I just recently wrote an article on Friday about a particular problem for 20-somethings and folks under the age of 30, young men specifically. 63% of those young men are single, double that of women. And that doesn't fare well for those young guys, doesn't fare well for men my age, I'm 40 or above either, because we tend to thrive in the traditional sense of what monogamy has been understood to be all these years, that's not going to be the case anymore unless we collectively level up our game. And I'm hoping that people who listen to your podcast and maybe consumer content at a Better Love Project will start to be able to get some of those skills, close that gap and start to meet each other's needs in more effective ways. Because if we don't, monogamy as we know it is is going to slowly deteriorate. I mean, it'll probably be around for about a thousand years, but it's going to slowly deteriorate under the present forces that are exerting itself on on it. For our listeners that they're interested to read that piece, I'll make sure that I leave it, include a link in the show notes. Like, and I have many of my female clients, they loved it. <laughs> it resonated with them. But I think you brought up such a great point, And I think that's where we differ a little bit. So about the concept of monogamy. So tell us, Do you feel is monogamy natural or it's a social construct? You said like maybe it's going away. Is it necessarily a bad thing? I want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably at least a few of our colleagues who emphasize more evolutionary psychology might speak to the kind of dependence, survival dependence, particularly in heterosexual relationships between men and women historically that has left both a power differential, but in, in relatively unhappy and unsatisfying sexually and romantically and everything else for a great number of relationships since the beginning of monogamy. Okay. So 
uh, bottom line is monogamy is natural in that it satisfied survival needs historically, right? This idea of being able to, to initiate and sustain a stable relationship with whatever benefits that came with that financial specifically food, water, shelter, all those things. But Dr. Nazanin, 2023, my position on this is that it is very much, monogamy is very much a, a social construct. And I know this because in the work that I do with my couples each and every day, each couple that I meet is constructing the meaning of what their relationship is and what they want from each other and what is going to be, what they're willing to accept when it comes to sexual intimacy, romantic intimacy, emotional intimacy, and what they're not willing to accept. And so things are drastically changing right now. But the, to, the fine point here is mostly a social construct. And you and I, even with this conversation today on this podcast, are shaping that construct. Well, I, I love that you were talking about this meaning and like finding meaning for couples. And I know like a couple therapists and a colleagues, they know how important it is for a healthy relationship to have that component. And you can have it whether if you're in a monogamous relationship or you're in a consensual non-monogamous relationship, as, as we talked about. And, you know, what I wonder about after working with so many couples is that the idea of having monogamy as a default, it's just not serving so many people. I can certainly see that for many of my clients, many of the people I know, they thrive in monogamy. But I also, I know that there are people that they are and monogamous relationships and they feel trapped. And today we're going to talk about temptation. You know, that was part of our conversation that how, how in this time and age, temptation is everywhere. Like if we both live in LA, so you can just walk outside and see gorgeous people, open your social media and see there's so many attractive people. So tell us, how do you think social media changed the landscape of like infidelity and temptation in modern relationships? Yeah, let me, I want to go back real quick to this idea of non-monogamy versus monogamy. I know we'll, we'll talk about it at, at length during a conversation today. My interpretation of, of experimenting perhaps with non-monogamous relationships and people are actively experimenting with non-monogamous relationships now. I've, I've seen it in my clinical work. I've seen it in, in my charitable work. And by the way, I don't poo-poo non-monogamy. I support everyone defining the kind of healthy love that they want to pursue in their life. And they're free to do that in any way, shape or form they want to, as long as it's legal and it doesn't hurt anybody. My love project, though, I think I can be pretty clear now and say that it is a champion of monogamy. And so is it the case that what's happening right now? I don't know. And maybe you could share your thoughts on this, but is it the case that the the rise in experimentation with non-monogamy from previously monogamous couples or individuals is coming from a general dissatisfaction, as you suggest. And if that's the case, then my preference would be, let's focus on the monogamous relationship in the first place, because at the core of problem with infidelity, as you mentioned, right, is a lack of trust and commitment. And trust and commitment per Doctors John and Julie Gottman with the Gottman method, the couples therapy that I use and in the research in general are the fundamentals to any close, intimate, emotionally connected, romantic relationship. I would suggest that we haven't even figured that out with monogamous relation with one person. <laughs> like we haven't figured out how to sustain trust and commitment and have clear boundaries and do it well with one person. So. Yes, we can experiment with non-monogamy if we're not getting things met in our monogamous relationship. Yes, that is an option for people. They can choose that together consensually, et cetera. But I would champion the idea that we first look to building these skills in a monogamous relationship. And now more than ever, because as you mentioned, Dr. Nazanin, and yeah, I, do, I just moved to Los Angeles, so it's a little bit shocking to me how many gorgeous people are around here. But it, it, the the idea of our potential options is the thing that really I want to point out. Social media specifically has like quadrupled the number of people that are with any given couple as they sit and wind down at the end of the day with their cell phones in their living room. Like it's just not you and your partner. It's you, your partner and whoever the 50 people that photos they're liking and the connections that they may have on social media. That would be my point is that the, 
the connection points have exponentially increased the possibilities for temptation, but I would just say a a thirst trap. Actually, I would describe it as a thirst trap, and I could say more about that. Are brand new, you know. Not, not to say that Playboy wasn't around. Not to say that porn didn't exist before social media. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about just general connection points with folks. Right, are pretty exponential, including very attractive folks who we may not even have any other kind of connection with, other than that we're following them on Instagram or TikTok. That's my main thesis there. I, what What are your thoughts about that, Nazanin? Well, I've loved everything that you said. I, I was trying to keep a mental note of the things that I wanted to share because I agree with you and many of the points that you mentioned. And I am sure that that was the case for you as well. But for many of our clients, we see that they want to open up the relationship for a wrong reason. Like, of course, as a clinician, it's not our job to say if it's the right, what is the right reason or what's the wrong reason. But you're right that when people are kind of like opening up the relationship because of so many deficits in the relationship, or perhaps maybe you're not at all interested in your partner, you're trying to kind of like engineer interest somehow other ways. If you're not clear about those things, I think that's that can be a recipe for a disaster if you're opening up the relationship. I've seen many people in my practice that they opened up the relationship and that transformed their relationship for the best. Like they, they found a spark back. But for many people I've seen that they opened up without being intentional about it, kind of thinking about that if I open up the relationship now, that's not going to be an issue anymore. But if when you don't, if I don't know how to ride a bike, I wouldn't know how to ride a bike in LA. I wouldn't know how to ride a bike in Barcelona. <laughs> it's the same problem. <laughs> so I think the skill that you're teaching is very, very valuable. And I think like for many people, for their temperament, for their lifestyle, non-monogamy also is, is a very good, solid option because it gives them the opportunity to have the meaningful relationships that they they search for and i love the idea of the thirst trap i know we talked about it and that the, the, when we had this conversation was back in december and i had no idea what you were talking about and somehow ig algorithm figured out my interest <laughs> so in my like i have a farsi page i have an english a podcast page and i have a personal page I was barely on my personal page before Iranian revolution. So now I spend more time on, on my Farsi page. And now so they figure out who I am. And like I get reels after reels. I'm not following any of these people. This gorgeous men from all around the world walk. I was like, what is happening here? <laughs> like, It's just like crazy. And you're right. It gives you this illusion of these are the options out there. So and that, how does that play? I can imagine like play negatively for so many relationships or create some illusion of options out there. So I want to hear more of your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's actually a huge problem. We don't have data on it. We've been looking at, you know, if I if you look at the research that our colleagues are doing into social media right now, it tends to be focused on teens and young young adults and kids, which is which we need to do. We need to continue to understand the impact of social media usage on those folks. But I think it's desperately needed for us to start to look at these thirst traps, all right? And TikTok specifically, I would assert here, if we still have TikTok in the United States by next week, who knows? But <laughs> <laughs> but TikTok specifically is quite problematic and different than Instagram. So if, just for your listeners who may not be aware of this, the algorithms the, the which decide which content to push to any one of us who uses these applications is designed as an interest-based uh, algorithm on TikTok versus a social-based algorithm on Instagram. Although Instagram, as you noted, based on your reels, your recent reels is moving toward more of like a, of like how much dopamine. This is the question. This is what they're trying to figure out. How much dopamine can we elicit from Dr. Greg when he goes on his TikTok? Like how many gorgeous and and this happens to me. I was telling you this. I created a an individual TikTok page and the first images that TikTok sent to me before I provided any input as to what I might be interested in were these gorgeous, like 25 year old women in bikinis. You know what I mean? It was just pushing this stuff constantly to me. And so what is that impact? We don't know. My suggestion is that something we've already started to become aware of in the last 10 years, which is FOMO, the fear of missing out is penetrating our intimate lives. Again, if we're spending 
let's say we're spending 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes on Instagram or TikTok. And, you know, 50% of that time we're staring at gorgeous people of the opposite sex, if that's who we're attracted to. And then we spend time with our wife or our husband or our girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. These images, these, uh, the stimuli is still there for us. So it may not be that our focus necessarily is as focused on our partner, how attractive they are or all of their amazing qualities, which we want to stay focused on if we want to continue to desire them versus, you know, how much they piss us off when they don't, you know, wipe down the dishes or whatever. And we have these more superficial dopamine rich experiences on TikTok. I believe it's going to start to erode our connection to our our partners. And as you mentioned, rightly so, give us the illusion, the false illusion that these people are options. You know what I mean? And you'll see it. And I know because I've seen it with my couples. They're starting to become, they're starting to be these boundary violations, crossings and violations with social media. And we may, may or may not disagree about what those might be, Nazanin, but I'm seeing them. <laughs> I agree with you. And I think that it's, it's working for the, these platforms, right? That I, I know that for our listener, Dr. Greg is a superstar on TikTok. <laughs> he has a following. Like I open my TikTok like once every other month. <laughs> so I, they haven't figured out like what's, what's happening. I haven't figured out what's happening there. But that's, that's working for the company. It's like with Instagram, for example, like personal Instagram, like I was maybe I was spending like five minutes each night, like commenting on my friends, liking like their children's pictures. But then I'm getting now inundated, like one after another, this goes from all around the world. So of course, like it's, it, it will take longer than five minutes for me to find myself <laughs> even to yeah, yeah. Kind of get out of that context. And as people that we work in the field of couple therapy, we have intentionality around these things. We hopefully we understanding things better. And I can imagine that if you don't have that awareness, that can definitely, as you mentioned, impact your relationship. But I also can think about this can be a tool to make your relationship more exciting, your erotic life more juicy and exciting. So which I think would be the next conversation about. So what what do you consider micro cheating? As you said that I have this feeling that we are different. <laughs> yeah. I you know what, in a lot of ways I'm pretty progressive and open minded. And obviously as a psychologist, as trained as a generalist and I could work with lots of different people in terms of their relationship choices, but I, it, I'm quite maybe traditional when it comes to boundaries and even as it's applied to social media. So micro cheating, let's talk about micro cheating. Before social media came into the picture, micro cheating might be these, these minor or more subtle, more gray area infractions or boundary crossings with someone other than our romantic partner. And so a very clear example of this is like, let's say, and many of us do, work alongside attractive people, people that we we find attractive, right? That's and it, definitely in LA. <laughs> and so what does that mean? Well, maybe an example of this is where we have a colleague of ours who's attractive. You know, we could plainly see they're attractive to us, okay? But we have a collegial relationship. A micro-cheating example is we start maybe texting that person, this is before social media, slightly flirtatious messages. We may be spending time after work or during work exclusively with that person or spending a lot of time with that person getting closer. And there's an actual sort of emotional intimacy developing there that we, in years past, did not recognize as a facet of relationship that we're now, I would suggest, I think we've already arrived. On that point, the idea that infidelity is not only a physical behavior, like penetrative intercourse with someone who's not you're, you're not in your relationship, but it can also be emotional, some kind of emotional intimacy. Would we agree that that's that's kind of that we've arrived in general for for most of the people that you encounter that they see it that way or not really? What would you say? But I, I see a spectrum of different things around that. So I invite people, like I would imagine, similar to you, to have this kind of relationship agreement. What is like that black and white cheating? And sometimes it's not that as black and white that people think. Like, is like you holding to someone's like holding them? Is that cheating or not? Because sometimes people think they have this similar idea about what cheating is, but they don't. So I definitely invite people to talk about it. 
with the kind of like emotional cheating, I've seen different kind of variation of how it plays out for people. For some people, for some couples, like even the kind of like their partner having emotional connection with someone else is actually a huger betrayal than them having any kind of intercourse or wild experiences. For them, that's the core of, of what makes that relationship special. And for some people, it's just like as long as, you know, as long as you're not having sex, you get to do whatever you want. And I've seen a lot of in between. But what what creates a challenge for me around micro cheating is that sometimes people use it as a way to control their partner. And it could like, I, I don't say that they don't necessarily have bad intention, right? Like we are pretty much continuing how like for most people, like how their family of origin were. Right. That then like now you're coming into this relationship. And if you're the structure of family origin was different, then now you think that if your partner looking at someone else or having interaction with them, or sometimes I've seen people talking about like, you know, texting, being friendly with a colleague that just kind of completely platonic, platonic, that's that they see that as a cheating. And what I know about eroticism, and I want to hear your thoughts on that, the more that you limit your lover, they feel kind of trapped. That's a recipe for killing desire. <laughs> so what, what's your thought on that? Yeah. Let's, okay. So just in general, let me just say, I agree with the last, definitely the last point you made and a, and a fierce, healthy love, the love that I champion monogamous or otherwise, but is, is a free and freeing love. So I make that point because I, I, here in in your in your position and observations here that there really is a degree you can become pathological i would suggest it's problematic when you get into the area of over controlling or where there's jealousy arising without perhaps even a reasonable consensus about what that problem is like looking like looking at someone for instance would be a little too far for me, you know what I mean? To say, walking down the street and someone glances and I see an attractive woman and I'm with my partner, I glance and I look and I look back to the road or I look back to my partner for a second. I think that's that's okay. If I'm staring at a woman's ass as I'm walking by her and I'm with my girlfriend, that's a problem. So there are degrees and the same goes for social media, I would say. So yes, I would not want my position to be interpreted by any of your listeners or anyone in the world as justification for controlling, manipulative, or, you know, any of that kind of stuff, for sure. And I would also suggest that I think the quality of our relational relational experiences has shifted in general. Our expectations in our relationship for emotional intimacy and closeness and connection and our radar for when that's there or not there has become more attuned and and so we're picking up more where there's a lack or and also when there's an overt, maybe boundary crossing. So let me give a very specific example of this. And I think we do disagree on this, but the use of emojis on social media, for instance. And I literally just heard this from a client yesterday, okay, who's in a relationship to a couple of therapy. So the use of emojis, if we're not, if we think about emotional intimacy as occurring through our words, not touch necessarily but through our words and communication, then we can see how social media comments, like not only likes, but comments in the context of that on social media will convey some kind of relatedness to that person, right? And if, as an example, let's say I was married, I'm not married, I'm single right now, but if I was married and my wife was putting heart emoji, like three heart emoji faces on some hot stud in a Speedo on Venice Beach, I would have a problem with that because for me, and that's, by the way, to your earlier point, I would have hopefully already communicated my thoughts about the stuff about social media and whatever to my partner. And we would have negotiated or talked about like what that is for each of us. And I would hope maybe I was partnered with someone who didn't like to send heart emoji faces to, to attractive men, <laughs> but, but that right there are hearts or flames or whatever can't, you know, what is the intention behind that? Right. And so men was, well, there's no intention behind that. I just, I just like the photo. I just, that could be an explanation. But I think that given that we're more attuned to the importance of emotional connection and relatedness, we have to at least consider together what these emojis and what these comments might imply. 
And then the second part of that is it's not a private thing, Dr. Nazani. So if I was in yesteryear, if I was flirting with a colleague of mine at work or something inappropriately, I would say, if I was in a relationship, no one's going to know about that necessarily. But if I'm on social media, so that's like micro cheating, right? There's like not, there's not a, not a known thing to my part. But if I'm on social media now, the whole world knows that I'm flirting with this person with the heart emoji face. So it has consequences, I think. What are your thoughts about the heart emoji face and this in general, Dr. Nasty? I love that. You know what I, I was thinking about? You definitely, I don't experience you someone that's saying that you have to live with people or that kind of like even a traditional patriarchal value that I don't know that's not who you are or like you're very, my experience is that you're very egalitarian, you value freedom. But I've seen that people using that micro-cheating as a trap for their partner that like it feels a little bit vague because you don't know like you cannot prove otherwise because we're calling it micro but again it just doesn't sound like the kind of like the partner having trust but sometimes people do things that it's a kind of repeated pattern you know your partner doesn't like it you're repeating it and that communicates something different with the heart emoji kind of i think that's such an excellent point like i'm married i think about okay if my husband put heart emoji on their picture i feel like if he wanted to kind of pursue someone else right that he would have dm them <laughs> no one that would have kind of want a relationship would do that publicly right if you are in a monogamous relationship so to me it feels like okay maybe if that's something that bothers me that's which is like it happens to be not it's, it would be something I would talk to him and then he wouldn't kind of be mindful next time. The next time, if he does it, it shows that I would feel that he's disrespecting me. I don't think necessarily he would, he's pursuing that person, but that would feel like disrespect. But I love to hear your, I love how different we are in this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think it, when it comes down to it, I think it's to your point. I really, it's like a, has it happened yet in your relationship? If you're listening to this right now. And you're on social and your partner's on social. Has it happened that there's been a, a boundary crossing? Something felt a little maybe uncomfortable and that conversation happened for sure. That I think that's a beautiful, let's adopt that. I adopt that as a measure of problematic nature of this kind of stuff is it has been brought up and has something changed as a result of that? Has a boundary been honored? In other words, so yeah, I like that. Well, let's talk about how to manage temptation, right? That I think in reality, not all of the likes, not all of the hearts, the ends are innocent. Like we see someone that we're interested in, we're thinking about let's, let's pursue them. What's the harm of like sending them a text or kind of like have becoming friend with them? Some people think it's, it could be a slippery slope. So tell us how can we manage temptation? Yeah. I'm pretty sure temptation has been around for the, since the beginning of humanity. <laughs> and so given that's the case, that there's all sorts of things, ways in which we can, we can act poorly as partners. I think from the very beginning, uh, and this comes down to some Gottman method stuff, as always, I think it comes down to creating shared meaning. And I've said this maybe in other ways so far today's podcast, creating shared meaning from the beginning about, you know, maybe six months, but within six, first six, 12 months of a relationship, romantic relationship, really communicating with your partner openly and clearly, particularly if you're a middle-aged person like me, and you should, you know, I would hope you understand all your core values, core beliefs, what your ethics and morals are, where those things come from, how they're similar, maybe different from when you grew up, when it comes to like good behavior. So in my view, and in terms of monogamy specifically, I'm not talking about monogamous folks, they are designing, non-monogamous folks are designing the kind of relational experience they want, co-constructing that, we hope, right, with their partners. But I'm talking about monogamous people right now. I think there's like, a, it's like a ones and zeros to me, all right? Ones and zeros, black and white. You're either doing the a behavior, you're not doing behavior when it comes to fidelity. And there's often this, in terms of temptation, like how are you responding to your attraction to other human beings? The two, the two things specifically on this that I want to point out is one, let's speak to men for a second. Am I as a man sexually objectifying? Let's say I'm attracted to the woman, which I am, by the way, but sexually objectifying a coworker, for instance, right? And the lens in which I'm viewing them is through their physical attractiveness versus the other qualities, which we would hope that you would be attuned to, connected to, if in fact, 
you have a platonic collegial relationship with that person. Am I objectifying? Am I leaning into this like over-scripted, over-utilized way of relating to women, number one? So maybe that's going on. And if it is, stop doing that. <laughs> and number two is how much joy, pleasure, and fun, and passion, and romance is there in my current romantic relationship? Because at the end of the day, am I, say am I saying, well, we just have to have blinders on, we have to walk around with blinders on and not observe the beauty around us. And yes, yeah, we are beautiful. There are a lot of beautiful people. We're beautiful people. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful people in the world and we can relate to each other in new ways. It doesn't have to be a sexual over-sexualized way. And then how are we actually nourishing all that beautiful joy and passion and romance in our relationship so that our focus can remain on our partner and, uh, and what it is that we're receiving from them and the relationship that we're developing and the sexual experience that we're deepening and maybe the novelty and this, I, this, I, I stole this from you, the novelty that we're bringing each and every year into a decades long marriage because Nazanin, holy shit, if we're going to live until we're a hundred years old, okay, monogamy is going to have its challenges. We're going to have to stay super focused and we're going to have to, we're going to have to have our relationships be relationships that meet our core needs around sexual intimacy so that we're not drawn to turning away from our partner and toward others. And maybe that's too simple of an answer, but that's that's my answer to your question. What what are your thoughts on this? I agree with you. I think like knowing your core value is so important. Knowing I think knowing yourself and re getting reacquainted with yourself, I would say every five, six years, because I can see that my core values, although they're the same, my interests, things that are important for me is evolving. So kind of like getting to be aware of that for yourself and communicating the changes with your partner. If you are in a long-term relationship, saying that, okay, this is this was this version of me in the past. This is what I want now. And I think kind of like showing up as yourself authentically, it requires lots of courage. It's really vulnerable to say to your partner that when you look at someone else or when you like someone's picture, it hurts my feelings very vulnerable. So it's easier to kind of like twist it, change it. So I think it's really important for us to know ourselves and hopefully work on, as you mentioned, like having a strong relationship that we can communicate those vulnerable things with our partner. I, I love that you, you think also the novelty is important because you think about even if you have the most delicious meal, like, like I'm a foodie, but if I have the meal for like, one year, like same meal, you want to have another version of it. There's nothing wrong with that meal, but you just want something slightly different. And that's something that you can definitely cultivate in your relationship. But I also wonder that like, I feel like all of these things that people see as temptation, it can be a kind of like a spices that you can bring in but then back to the relationship, right? That if you're feeling, for example, if you have a partner at work that you like them, you're not crossing boundaries, but being around them energizes you. Then you can use that in your relationship with your partner because you feel better about yourself. Or if, you've, or, or if you're seeing reels and like in TikToks, things that are really hot, you can then therefore incorporate those as a fantasy in, in like different aspects of your sexual life. You know that not everyone would like to incorporate the kind of like outside information into the relationship. But I see that I can really awaken some of the relationship that are stale. Yeah. I mean, I think you're talking about overall. I think one of the things I took from what you just said was the, the idea that desire in general, arousal, sexual arousal, desire, the energy that you mentioned, you know, might be aroused outside of a relationship in some sense, intentionally or unintentionally. But that actually can set us up if we, with that, then turn toward our in a monogamous relationship, with that, then turn toward our partner and use that energy to enjoy each other, to use different ingredients in that same recipe that we've been eating for 10 years or whatever. <laughs> and it's, it remains to be seen, Dr. Nazanin, if anything I'm saying about monogamy is going to hold true, you know, 30 years from now, I, I really, we, we are in the midst of it right now. I mean, really, how long can we be satisfied with the same meal? I mean, that's the question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's a challenge for sure. 
I love that. I love that you brought that up. And again, it's, it's, it has like all of the options, like monogamy, not monogamy. It has its own pros and cons. I got so excited when you're talking about you. I mean, you have like different way of seeing things at times. And I, I love chatting with you. So go ahead. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. I mean, I, I think I want to make mention one, one thing about outside stuff and it has to do with porn. We mentioned porn. We talked about porn before. I think you probably talk about porn often. It's a sexology podcast. There are three different external ways that, you know, we might be, it could be a temptation. We could be viewing it that way, or it could be viewing the way that you're describing as it's sort of an arousing thing that we can then turn toward a part of for. But I think there's three qualitative differences between these things. Porn being one of them, OnlyFans, I'm going to talk about OnlyFans today on your podcast being the second thing. And the third being TikTok or Instagram. The difference between these things in terms of you know, the arousal and the, the threat or the risk of infidelity, boundary crossing, whatever. Porn, we know. Some people like it, some people don't. Some couples watch it together, some couples don't. I would suggest, I don't know if I'm right on this, you know, you can tell me, but I would suggest that, well, actually, I know. Something like 80% of men are, you know, consume porn on some regular basis, and that's much higher than women in general. So I think mostly men are watching porn. There's a, there's a dis, these, these are actors, in other words, you know, in, in traditional porn. These are actors playing a part. And so that's one level of distance from these people. Then there's this OnlyFans thing. I don't know if only has this come up for you in any of your clinical work? I know it has for me. OnlyFans. We have actually a guest that she's a very well-known OnlyFans star. So I want to hear what you have. Oh, damn. I'll, I'll have it's to catch that. Interesting. <laughs> I'll have to catch that episode. I'll, I'll go listen to it after this. Well, for those of you who don't know, I mean, if you didn't catch that episode, you should listen to it with me. It's coming today. up in two weeks. Oh, so two it's weeks. Not, it's coming up it in two weeks. It hasn't released. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in two weeks, we'll listen to it together. But yeah, OnlyFans, there's a combination of things going on. There is, there is the sharing of, you know, potentially of and likely of sexually explicit fo- photography and other content for money, which is similar to porn in that regard. But there's this sort of almost social media-ish kind of exchange or possibility of exchanging messages between the the fan and the the person that is very qualitatively different. I would say from porn, the threat of boundary crossings increases in that regard. Then you have TikTok and Instagram, which has no explicit sexual or romantic connotation. And yet, as we have already mentioned, has plenty of content that is, if not pornographic, it's, you know, it's very alluring and, and arousing. Let's put it that way. And in this scenario, in the last scenario, there is direct connection between viewers and the creator, regardless of whether they have 50,000 followers on TikTok or five. It doesn't matter. There's, I, that's the last point I want to definitely make tonight, today in this podcast is there is a relationship in my view forming. We can call it a parasocial relationship or we can call it just a regular relationship, but something is happening there, which again, opens up the risk for some kind of emotional, if not sexual intimacy down the line. And so I'm excited to actually hear that episode in a couple of weeks to see, to hear more about like that and how, I wonder, I wonder if that person sees their connection to their fans, how they see them. Yeah. It's very fascinating, all of these platforms and how people can relate to them and make connections and get their needs met. And I, I agree with you that for some people, like, it's a non-issue possibly that their partner watches porn, but if you have an artist like a, that you're supporting an only fan, that's definitely could be a crossing the line. So I think I invite people to kind of first of all get honest with themselves that, okay, what, what are some of my hard no's and communicate that with your partner. I, I, that's then something I do in my relationship all the time. We like uh, as a way of playfulness, we always talk about what would be a crossing the boundaries. So, for example, we we're watching Outlander last year and we we're talking about would it be a crossing of the boundary if I go to another time <laughs> and get married? <laughs> so they're like always thinking and talking about this thing can help you to understand your partner. Of course, I'm not going to get a time machine, but it gives you an idea about what 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 does your partner think about crossing boundary? What do you think? And get to know yourself that. 
what triggers that feeling of, to me, abandonment, right? So when I hear when people think about crossing the boundaries, often comes either about fear of losing the partner or disrespect, that this comes to these two emotions. So kind of knowing that what's underneath for you can help you to kind of like take steps based on those values that you have and communicating it with your partner. And I think people are different. I think it's the individual responsibility, right? That like I'm responsible if I make the agreement, even in a non-monogamous relationship, non-monogamous relationship, often it's not, you can do whatever you want. There are going to be some boundaries and frame there. And it's, it's up to the person to kind of get to know themselves that what often leads to the temptation for them to cross the line and what can they do to protect themselves? What are some of the things that you've seen for your couples that you work with that they use as a protection for themselves for not crossing the line? That's an interesting question. I don't think I even have an amazing answer to that, to be honest with you. I, 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 you know, most of the couples that I see when infidelity has come up, and obviously I've worked with many, many couples who are navigating that, regardless of who it was that was unfaithful in that relationship. And our first steps in, in, in that regard is repairing and trying to turn toward and to rebuild trust and commitment. So I guess the, my answer to you would be, for everyone to to focus on trust and commitment. And the easiest way to do that, and this is piggybacking off something you just said, Dr. Nazani, which is the easiest way to do that, regardless if you're in a not, particularly if you're in a non-monogamous relationship, it's going to require a significant amount of clarifying what your commitment to each other actually is, like where those lines are. You know what I mean? And that is no less true for monogamous couples as well, because the the insecurity, the anxiety, the fear of losing that comes up that you mentioned comes about from a lack of, in my view, a lack of transparency. And so the best thing that I could suggest anyone do with their partner is be as transparent as humanly possible with what they're, you know, wanting to create in their life. No secrets in couples. And yeah, it does does take some vulnerability to communicate when you're feeling uneasy about things and checking in or maybe asking for transparency from your partner when you might think it's asking a little bit too much, whatever. But just actually having those conversations can be an inoculation, I would suggest, to temptation turning away and other things, which just to put a last point on it, that you define them that yourself what those what those boundaries are. You know what I mean? You co-construct it. It is within your power to do that in freedom. We choose each, we hope, we hope, particularly in, you know, in Portuguese, particularly Western society, Europe, you know, we hope that more and more people are able to free to choose each other freely each and every day. And the last thing I'll say, particularly for those married couples out there, and this is a point that I emphasize to everyone I meet, that commitment is a commitment in choosing each other isn't one day. It's not a wedding ceremony. You know what I mean? I don't know about you, but I don't think anything magical happens at a wedding. Okay. Like there's nothing you wake, you don't wake up the next morning and suddenly you're this a different person. You're the same two people who have now made a, have, you know, gone through a ritual of emotional connection to codify their commitment to each other, but it, it is in shoot. It's really choosing each other each and every day. And that takes intention, effort, and conscious awareness to do that and to communicate transparently. That's my long-winded answer to you. <laughs> I agree with you and how beautiful. I think again, as we, as we talked earlier, people think about it's like, you know, like the relationship when, when you get the one, it's supposed to go smoothly then after that for the next 60, 70 years. And as, as you mentioned, it requires commitment, improving your skill, kind of like checking in with your partner. And it's just so worth it if you're in the right relationship with the right person and it requires the work. I know that there was some other stuff we wanted to talk about and get to it, but I always enjoy talking to you so much. I feel we need to have another part soon. But for now, I know that I'm following you on social media. You put out so many great content, more of teaching people these skills for free. For, so if our listeners want to get to know you, your work, where can they find those content? Well, we're talking about these parasocial relationships. Why don't you start a parasocial relationship with me? I'm a creator on TikTok and Instagram <laughs> and YouTube at A Better Love Project. And you can find me there or you can go to our website and you can support us with a charitable donation at abetterloveproject.org. I am producing all this stuff for free. 
And because we want to make sure that people have access to it. Most people don't have access to people like Dr. Nazanin and I. And that's unfortunate. So we got to get this information out somehow. And I will say, I actually care about the people who follow me. And this is why this is such, this is such a big deal for me. Because <laughs> I actually, you know what I mean? I'm actually communicating with, with the folks who connect with me on Instagram and TikTok almost on a daily basis. I'm meditating with people. So, but please support the projects. Come love more fiercely. Well, thank you for coming on the show. The information for Dr. Greg's charity will be nonprofit will be on the show notes. And we would love to hear your thoughts about what do you think about how to manage the temptation. Thank you, Dr. Greg. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. It's definitely a treat whenever I have Greg on our show. If you have a thought that you want to share with us and monogamy, cheating, make sure that you're joining the conversation about this topic on our Instagram account at Sexology Podcast. Before we go, I want to leave you with a thought-provoking study that challenges the idea of monogamy as the norm. A 2017 research published in the journal Evolutionary Behavioral Science found that only 18% of over 2,000 participants reported having only one sexual partner in their lifetime. This study opens up a whole new perspective on the concept of monogamy and raises the question about the role of cultural norm in shaping our beliefs and relationships. I encourage you to continue exploring this topic and keep an open mind. Maybe you want to share this episode with your partner and have a conversation about it. And I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on this topic to see if you're Team Greg or Team Nazanin. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.